Before anything else, I would like to introduce myself. This is MJ together with my groupmates. Hi, what's up? It's Princess. Not here. It's Wah. Hi, Raymond here. And we are here for episode... Three! Oh, Sess, I saw your recent post, but together with your niece, she was using her phone to take selfies, right? How old is she, by the way? She's actually just three years old, Jewel. And she can look at... Big videos on YouTube without any assistance at all. Wow, at a very young age, she already knows how to use techie stuff, scroll various mobile applications or social media platforms. However, says actually, not many people realize the risk of one's data privacy rights as they use the internet in their everyday life. That is right, Jewel. In fact, even us adults aren't that well knowledgeable on how to protect our data privacy rights or when to distinguish legitimate infringement on one's rights. That is why it is very fortunate that we have today our resource speaker. He is a graduate from the University of Cebu School of Law. He recently passed the Leonin Bar. He is the Global Manager for Legal Privacy and Compliance of Teleperformance he is as well a certified international data privacy professional. He is the one and only king of data privacy of UC, none other than Attorney Ariel Conrad Malimas! <laughs> Attorney Ariel, again, thank you very much for accepting our invitation. It is really our honor, Attorney. So, thank you very much for the invitation. No? Um, this is a very privileged and humbling opportunity for me to share my knowledge with everyone, with you guys. Um, this is, a, a, again, a very wonderful um, opportunity and I'm, I'm very thankful to be here. Oh, yes. Attorney, so um, I, have, um, I have a quick question for you, Attorney. So, Attorney, how did you learn to love data privacy? Like, I mean, who inspired you? Even if data privacy is like very vague, it's very like technical, like, like every time I will look at the law, it's like, mm, no speed like that. So, like, who inspired you to love that specialization? Thank you for that question. And I would like to answer that in a way that I'll tell you how I started my data privacy journey, right? So, it was 2013, and I was applying for a lot of jobs, no? because I was, I was a working student in the undergrad, in the law school days. Um, I stumbled upon this company called, it was called Trustee. Uh, it's now called TrustArt. Uh, they are an international data privacy consulting company, data privacy management company. I did not know what the industry was at that time. I applied for jobs, uh, they gave me an interview, they liked my interview, and then they accepted me for the position. So I started as, because I have a technical background, no? uh, self-learned, you know, like you heard the stories like programmers and people like that, they self-learn. It was sort of like that. I self-learned information security concepts in during my younger years, during my teenage years. 
Uh, I did open source programming, etc. But I am a human resource graduate, so I, I don't have an IT background. Um, so yeah, so that's how I started. No, um, I became a software analyst uh, after six months. I I was retained in a permanent position. I became the first technical analyst for TrustArt. I moved to the corporate ladder. I became the senior analyst, and finally the lead analyst for TrustArt. Um, in 2019, I was offered a job with Dell Performance. I was their first and now only uh, global privacy manager for legal privacy and compliance. So, yeah, and that's how I started. My, I think it was pure luck, talaga. No, it was pure luck that I started in privacy, not knowing where I'm going. But I'm very thankful that people took, you know, the opportunity to hire me, to accept me, to give me chances, diba? to learn and everything else. So. Uh, very good mentors, uh, very good experience with you know, clients and people that you deal with, workmates, etc. It was a very fulfilling experience, and that's how I found my place right now in data privacy. Even if you know, when I became a lawyer, I know this is the field where I'm gonna specialize in. Yeah, I'm not gonna change it for probably a long time. We don't know, but I'm I'm very happy where I am. Wow, attorney, your your story is really inspiring, no? Because you, at a very young age, before you became a lawyer, you, you already know your special your field of law. So, attorney, um, the problem now is that not many Filipinos know about data privacy. In fact, even if they would want to know, attorney, the provisions of the law is very technical. In layman's language, attorney, how would you describe one's data privacy right? So, um. There is a misconception, right? When you think of the word privacy, people think, oh, it's you need to keep things a secret, right? You need to you need to keep information. Don't don't share information. Don't 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 you dare, you know, register on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. But that's not correct, right? Privacy is about having control over your information. If you look at the law, the spirit of the law is giving individuals the rights, right? Data subject rights. Data subjects have rights. They have the right to control how their information will be shared. They have the right to know what information is being processed, how it's being shared, deleted, stored, etc. So the concept of privacy really bottoms down to having control over information about yourself, right? If I want to share all my life every second of the day online, that's fine. That's the that's an exercise of your right to privacy. Similarly, if you don't want to share anything online, you don't want people to know, you know, that you got a new laptop, that you know you went to law school. That's fine. That's all on you. It's the individual person's right to share information. If they don't want to share, that's okay. But if they want to share, they should know, you know, what is who it is who it is I'm sharing. What are the risks if I will share that information? How will you handle my information? So by knowing those risks, I accept those risks as a data subject. I upload a photo example and I know it's going to be seen by my friends on Facebook and that's fine, right? That's a legitimate way of sharing information. And the, and the law is not about preventing sharing of information. It's actually because that's it. Eh? Uh, if you look at government agencies, they always say, ah, it's data privacy. We cannot share that with you. It's not actually a blocker. It's actually allowing the safe and reliable transfer of information, sharing of information across organizations, governments, businesses, internationally. So international commerce, data is the new oil of the 21st century, right? So if you think about it, how can you regulate the transfers of data? That's through privacy. Privacy enables 
data to be transferred you know freely you know through commercial means or through government means it is an enabler not a blocker of of information sharing so that's a misconception i want to you know distill on that but really it's about how you control your information you know yourself how you deal and how you share your information to others that was a very wonderful insight attorney and for us to be able to delve deeper into data privacy we have some questions based on our observations in our society today or even from our own experiences so when jewel mentioned a while ago that you are an alumnus of uc school of law two words crossed my mind commencement exercises in fact it is one of the important milestones in the life of every student so during commencement exercises there are some universities which distribute a directory of graduates to the graduating batch and usually attorney the uh, these contain the full name hometown and even the contact numbers of the graduates um, attorney what are its implications in terms of data privacy so that one is a bit tricky no because you look at it from because there are different players in a privacy transaction if you look at the law there are always three players in a privacy transaction right you have the data subject who is the person whose information is being processed you have the PIC or the controller personal information controller who determines the means the methods how the information will be processed etc and you have the personal information processor who is the entity or the person who is instructed by the PIC to process that information it's like if you think about it it's like an agency relationship the PIC is the principal while the uh, PIP is the agent of the PIC so that's that's the common transaction in in this case you have the university who is the PIC because the university holds information about their students they determine how that information will be processed and then the data subjects are the students whose information is being published you know in that directory in the commencement exercises and then you have also other parties involved like you know the venue who will be processing that information etc so there there are various parties involved but that's the three basic parties that we can speak of um now what are the implications in that kind of scenario where you have your commencement exercises people publishing your names and your information in a directory right especially in the in the in the program right you see the names etc um i don't think that's a violation of data privacy however there there are various contexts to that and this one is a, is a tricky one because we see it happen all the time in practice actually the national privacy commission has an advisory opinion it is uh, the advisory opinion number 2020046 it outlines the common practices of schools in personal data processing of students so if you look at the national privacy commission's website you can see their various advisory opinions so you know that there's no jurisprudence for pr- data privacy right there are for privacy concepts like the right to privacy the reasonable expectation of privacy the cats test right the objective subjective test that covers the um, reasonable expectation of privacy but there's no really interpretation of the data privacy act when it was released and even until now so th- there are but it's not it's it's only a few right? like the recent one about you know the mess the messages from messenger are actually right because that one was because uh, just a segue on that one it was actually because the person shared his password to that other person and the other person accessed his messenger how can you say that why are you accessing my my information well you gave me your password diba that's the that's the that's the gist of the case right uh, in relation to data privacy now going back to this one um in order for personal data to be valid it 
must concur to different requirements. And the requirements are outlined in Section 12, uh, 11, 12, and 13. So 11 talks about the different principles of privacy. Section 12 talks about the legal basis to process personal information. Section 13 talks about the legal basis to process sensitive personal information. Now, for processing to be valid, first we need to determine whether it complies with the privacy principles. So Section 11, the principles of transparency, legitimate purpose, and proportionality. So transparency meaning the data subject is aware how you are going to be processing the information. They are knowledgeable about what you're going to do with their information. There's no surprises, right? There's no secret. Like, I, don't, I will not tell you how I will process your information. Well, that's not transparent, right? A legitimate purpose. You must have a purpose. Why are you doing this? Why are you collecting the information? You can't just say, I'm collecting it because I feel like it, right? That's that's not allowed. That's not, that's not lawful. Or you collect it because hmm, maybe I will use this in the future. What if a lawsuit will happen? You can't you can't use that uh, because you need to have a legitimate purpose. Legitimate meaning there is a valid reason why you're collecting that information. And finally, we talk about proportionality. So even if your processing is transparent, even if it's lawful, you have a legitimate purpose, but it's not proportional. So what do we mean by proportionality? Proportionality is about, you know, if I'm processing the information, it must not be excessive or in a way that is intrusive to the data subjects. Because there's a test, proportionality test in privacy provides that. The processing must be the least intrusive manner. Now, given this example, if I want people to know who are the graduates, what is the least intrusive way? Well, you can put them in a list, that's valid. But do you need to put their phone numbers or their full address, right? That's not proportional, diba? But putting their names, there's a risk because everyone will know what the name is. But in addition to that, what is, you know, what, what, what are the other risks for privacy random, right? Compared to putting the phone number and the full address, someone might stalk you, go to your address because, you know, they have a crush on you, right? And they go to your address listed in the directory. Um, and also, if you put your phone number, you might be receiving spam messages or they might text you, you know, you know, hi, I really like you, I have a crush on you, please tag at me. You know, like, like those kinds of things, right? So you need to think about proportionality. It is the least intrusive way that you can share the information. If it's not the least intrusive, you must justify it. You must have very good justification while you're processing personal information. And if you go to the privacy litigation side, that is always where it usually revolves, right? If, if the data subject complains, my information was processed unfairly, it is now in the onus or the burden of the personal information controller to defend his position that I am collecting this for a lawful purpose, it is proportional, it is transparent, and it is legitimate. So those kinds of things we need to think about. Now, going back to this problem, um, I'm the opinion that the names and even the hometown of, of graduates, right? So, you know, like, you know, Ariel from Cebu City. That's fine. Ariel Conrad Malimas from Cebu City. Yeah, in general terms. Uh, that's fine. But if you say, you know, Ariel Conrad Malimas from, you know, 123 Street, something, something, like, yeah, like, why do you need to know that? Like, again, it goes back, why do you need that information? If it's only for publishing and showing where you're from, why do they need to know your complete address? Or why do they need to know your phone number? What's the purpose, right? So really, it goes it goes again to, why are you collecting it? What is your purpose? What is your reason? And is it the least intrusive way of doing things? Okay. So, um, and in that advisor opinion, the NPC really emphasized the proportionality part. Because that's where most of the people or the PICs fail to substantiate. 
So, because they have this really lawyer-like notice, that, you know, you waive your rights, you give up your firstborn child, etc. Those kinds of very legal documents. That actually, that's actually not good because the the requirements of a privacy notice it must be clear, it must be understandable in a language known to the data subject. So if the data subject looks at it, it's a document for lawyers. How would how would they be how how would they be transparent, right? It violates the principle of transparency. So, uh, and in proportionality, really, it, it's about justifying it because you can have the best notice, the best justification, but if it's excessive. Now, a very good example is when employees are working from home and your employer says, I want your camera to be on all of your shift, right? Because I want to see you that you're working because we're paying for you. Is that, yeah, you're compensated, but is that proportional? Like, do you really need to look at your... Are you looking at your employee eight hours? Like, I would ask the employer that. Are you looking at me eight hours? Are you sure that every second of my shift, you're looking at me to make sure I'm not doing something non-productive? It's excessive. It's disproportional. The processing is invalid. So that's why it's very careful. Because if you look at it from a labor standpoint, some labor lawyers say, no, that's okay, because that's, you know, one of the right to the employer. But from a privacy perspective, you can't do that. That's excessive and disproportional. So that's one of the intricacies of the privacy practice is that we look at it from a privacy and from a data subject's perspective. What are the risks to the data subject? What is the benefit to the organization? Are you really benefiting from looking at people eight hours? Like, what is the benefit to the organization in doing that? So th- those kinds of things are the things that you need to think about. And going back to this, really, proportionality, I would my recommendation is names and the hometown, that's okay. Um, but beyond that, you need to have justification. Like, why, why are you putting that there? Why are you putting that in the directory? If you can justify it, if you can be transparent about it, and if you can uh, pro- proportionalize that it's the best way to do it, and the least intrusive way, then I think it's valid. But for this one, really, the names and the hometown should be the baseline. Atrini, I have a follow-up question regarding that, Atrini. So, let's say, Atrini, like, um, like, name, and then the address, and then the phone number. And then it's already printed out in the like booklet for given out to all the parents and all the attendees of the graduation. For example, at really like like for example in waterfront, and then I just leave my booklet there with the contacts of other people. And then let's say the Janet Dress uh, took it, and then like choose a contact number there, and then like use it for fraudulent activities. So for example, in, in that scenario, at really, will, will will there be any like um, criminal cases to be filed against the 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 school that really like for example like the the janitress really like uh, was able to get money for using scamming at really that's okay. so um, in that scenario no uh, the PIC is the university so under the law if you look at the law if you read the law who has the obligations in terms of data privacy rights and upholding data privacy rights and complying with data privacy obligations. It is always the PIC or the Personal Information Controller. The Personal Information Controller is ultimately responsible for complying with the Data Privacy Act, not the PIP, not the data subject. So, sorry, let me just make some. Yeah, Like even us, we are law students. We sometimes like right tests. Like yes. I even space out when Atrini was talking about like what is data privacy for layman to understand. I'm like, oh, oh, that's how you understand it in layman's term. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so going back to Atrini, 
So, uh, going back to that scenario, no, we're in the Janipress. So, you have here two different proce processors of, so, different processing activities involving two different controllers, right? PICs. Again, going back, what is the basic parties in a data privacy transaction? Data subject, PIC, PEPI. PIC determines how the information will be used. They, 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 they process the information on their own will and volition, etc. So, they decide how the information is processed. The janitress willingly, right, took the information and processed it herself. She is a PIC. However, the university is similarly a PIC because they are in custody of the original information. So, they should have provided safeguards and protections. And if you look at, I think it's section 25 or something, security obligations. So, there are security obligations in relation to data privacy processing. Uh, the security must be adequate and reasonable. Uh, to the way that the information is being processed. So, it's not only that you comply with the requirements, but also there's an additional layer if you process it, it must have security safeguards, which is adequate and reasonable, you know, physical, administrative, and I think technical safeguards, right? So, that's one of the requirements for that. And if it found that the university, you know, on its own, failed to implement security measures in order to prevent that from happening, or the processing was excessive and they did not have the right security, they may still be liable. However, consequently, the janitress who took that information will also be liable herself, you know, independently. Yeah, because she processed information without lawful right. And that is what we call unlawful processing. Wow, guys, see, even if we are still in our first question, I guys, have you learned a lot already? Oh, of course. <laughs> of course. Alright, so Atrini, I have no notice here, Atrini, like you have your iPad, like very many gadgets, Atrini. So I'm just curious, Atrini, like, where do you usually shop your gadgets? Or like, do you do you go to malls directly? Or like, you use e-commerce to buy your things, Atrini? So this one is a work laptop, so the company bought it. <laughs> um, this one, you know, this is my personal iPad. The reason why it's an iPad, because my wife, you got my laptop so she's now using my laptop and I don't think I can afford another laptop for, for, the, for, for the meantime so I'm just using this but it's, 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 it fits for my purpose but going back to your question I just buy from um, I usually buy from physical stores because they are reliable in terms of warranty claims right because I mean you can buy like from Shopee and from Lazada but you need to take note that cheaper it is and the more the more intricate the seller you will be having a hard time claiming for warranty. Unless it's an Apple product wherein they universally accept, you know, uh, warranty claims. For other devices, um, it may not be the case. Oh, Adrini, I asked that question because I am really fond of using Shopee Adrini. And my friend here says, has a question regarding Shopee Adrini. As someone who's been a Shopee addict for the past <laughs> pandemic, Especially when you receive the parcel, you get this killing feeling opening up, um, box, unboxing <laughs> review. So, when you receive uh, a parcel from Shopee, the delivery man usually takes a picture of you. Um, and then later on, when you find out that it's been uploaded in Shopee, I mean, you knew that the deliver one, delivery man was taking a picture, but the fact of uploading it on Shopee as proof of delivery, you don't really know about much about that so attorney in this case is there a violation uh, of the of the receiver's data privacy and if there is who should be held liable is it the driver or the shopee itself so i think for that we need to look at it from two different perspectives now. i think the answer will surprise you who are you lawyering for 
Are you the privacy lawyer for the complainant or the privacy or the DPO for Shopee, right? And okay, so we can look at it from two different perspectives now. And I'd like to start with if you're the lawyer of Shopee or the driver, right? Either the delivery courier or or Shopee in this case. We need to look at first the nature of the transaction no? between Shopee and the delivery courier because the delivery courier is the one taking the picture. Uh, are they acting as an agent on behalf of Shopee or are they processing that information on their own account? It can be they are a P co called joint PICs, joint controller relationship, um, wherein two parties are controller of the same personal data. You also have co-controllers wherein they are controllers individually regarding the same or different data sets. Um, but that's too that's too deep now. <laughs> so in this in this case, let's just say Shopee and the driver is a co-controller, right? Um, in this case, Shopee can defend itself by saying we have a legitimate interest. If you look at Section 12, one of the legal bases to process personal information is legitimate interest. In practice, you always think about, and I think this is one of the misconceptions I'd like to debunk as well, right? Because it's always consent. You haven't had my consent. My consent was not was not given. That's actually wrong because if you look at Section 12 and 13, there are a lot of legal bases other than consent. Consent is one of them. That's correct. But if you're a privacy practitioner, if you're a privacy lawyer, you always try to avoid consent. What is the reason why you want to avoid consent? It's because consent can be withdrawn. If I say I withdraw my consent, what do you do? If you're the if you need that data, if you're the company and you need that data, if they say I want to withdraw, well, you can know it it it's now a restriction of processing. Um, if you look at the data subject rights, the data subject can have the right to restrict their information. And if they say, I don't want to consent anymore, that effect that the effect that is restriction of processing. So you can no longer process the information further because the data subject cuts the, the consent. You use other legal bases. The most common one is legitimate interest. Now, legitimate interest, that, that's the last part. It's just there. Uh, legitimate interest of the controller that's you know unless it's it's in violation of the fundamental rights and freedoms of the data subject that's the last paragraph in section 12. now going back to this scenario legitimate interest is provided that you know a very common example is cctv when you go to the mall or to a shop do you have to consent to cctv right uh, who has experience <laughs> consenting to cctv no one right no one will say oh before you come here to ayala you need to sign this consent form that we will collect your video. Well, that's not the case, right? It's because they're using legitimate interest. They have a legitimate interest for the safety of their shoppers to prevent fraudulent transactions, shoplifting, etc. And for the safety and security of all the mall goers since it is a public area. Reasonable expectations of privacy are lower as compared to one's private home. So you can use legitimate You don't need consent. You need to use legitimate interest. You can also use contractual necessity. That's the second thing. Right? After consent, you have there in section 12, contractual necessity. It is necessary for the contract which is entered by the data subject. An example is a, a sales transaction. Right? When you buy something, and you type your you put your name, right? When you buy something, you, you put your name. Do you need consent? No. Oh, because this is a contract of sale. Right? I'm selling your good, I'm selling you my goods, and you're buying it using my money. We have a contract. I don't need your consent because we're fulfilling a contractual obligation. So consent again is, is should be the last the, the last legal basis. It's, it's it's called in practice the legal basis of last resort. 
So, yeah. So, going back to the Shopee, if you were the lawyer of Shopee and the driver, you can argue that there is a legitimate interest to ensure that, you know, you have been, you have so many fraudulent transactions are going on. What if the buyer will receive them and say, I haven't received it, right? Matiwai ang item, right? Yeah. That item will be, you know, fraudulently obtained, you know, unlawfully gained by someone else. You know, there's unjust enrichment. And also on the side of the delivery courier, remember, the delivery person under the law and sales is is law and sales but is liable for you know if the goods are lost in transit right so how will the the, the shipper protect himself by ensuring that it is received in good faith so that is the defense of you're the lawyer for Shopee now going back to going back as a data subject because say you file a complaint here you got the best privacy lawyer now what is the defense what is the argument on the side of of the the data subject now, as a lawyer, you can argue that taking the picture inside the residence or outside the residence is disproportional. A violation of the principles of transparency, legitimate purpose, and proportionality. Aside that ensuring that there is proper legal basis, again, you can always say, Shopee, you are correct, absolutely right. Delivery person, you're absolutely correct. There is a legal basis. You have legitimate interest and you have contractual necessity. But is it proportional, transparent, and legitimate? Well, Shopee can say yes or you know it's up to them to defend themselves but the almost really is on the PIC um, so aside from ensuring the legal basis you must ensure that it adheres to the principles if if the person was not informed beforehand of the delivery terms and conditions or was not expecting for the picture to be taken or cannot refuse to have the picture taken then it is considered as um, not transparent uh, if there's no clear reason why a picture needs to be taken it's, it doesn't have a legitimate purpose and finally, you can also argue that it's disproportional. What are the other ways that the same objective of preventing fraud and preventing, you know, people from misdeclaring receipt, receipt of goods, what is the other, you know, ways? Well, you can require their signature when receiving, right? That's usually the case, like LBC requires your signature. They don't take your picture, like, why do you need to take my picture? LBC can go with your signature. If you say, I received the goods in good condition, and you signed it in your name, why do you need the signature? It's disproportional. Again, it's not the least intrusive way of processing the personal data. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not the least intrusive way. So that's the argument on the side of uh, the data subject. So, I have a follow-up regarding that, Attorney. So um, you have said a while ago, Attorney, that the Shopee or uh, Shopee or e-commerce can protect themselves by saying that um, it is for legitimate purpose. There's a contractual um, contractual relationship. But attorney, for my case, attorney, like I am really a Shopee lover. So <laughs> usually I don't use the COD already. So I connect my bank account to Shopee or my GCash account. So attorney, I think now that you that, that our topic is getting deeper and I I am learning a lot, attorney. I think. I am doing it the wrong way. I think my my money might be taken by someone else. My account might be used by someone else, Atrini. Or like, Atrini, like, am I in the wrong side already? Or am I at risk by connecting my bank account and my GCash account with money char on it, Atrini? Uh, no. Why? Because banks are... So, let me just check something. So, banks actually have a standard for information security. I'm just trying to find it out. Ah, there it is. So, we have two different ways of looking at this. Um, first is we look at the industry standard. So, when you process credit card, you, see, you know, every single card you have has a MasterCard or a Visa. 
So they actually form an alliance called the Payment Card Industry Alliance. So they are industry group. They have this they have this standard called PCI DSS. And if 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 you know someone from if you know someone that works in information security or banks or payment right duties, you have a standard called PCI DSS. That is called the Payment Card Industry Digital Security Standard. This is not a law. This is a requirement. Um, if you process card data, you need to comply with that requirement, or else Mastercard or Visa may not allow you to use their payment gateway. And everyone uses Mastercard or Visa, so you have to comply, right? It's a, it's like a law, but you know, it, it's it's actually a standard, not, not a law. In terms of regulation, there's actually a BSP Circular Number 982. So BSP Circular 982 talks about information security governance and information security requirements for Banco Central supervised authorities. So the, the BSP Circular 982 has certain requirements in relation to using payment information of its uh, customers. And you also have the manual regulations for banks, which requires all BSP supervised entities to implement information security measures. So I would say if it's a BSP entity, and if the if the if the merchant is PCI DSS or uses Visa or Mastercard, you can be fairly confident that the information is secure. Um, what happens usually? It's it's usually the fault of users <laughs> whenever their card is is charged and you know irregularly. Sometimes someone you know they 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 place their card, someone took a picture of their card, or they you know through a call they were fished or scammed or etc. So that's what usually happens. It's very rare that the bank themselves is responsible for the breach, right? Like someone steals all the credit card data. That's very rare because one of the requirements is you don't store, if you're the merchant, you don't store the card information. You rely on the payment gateway. So you cannot know, you will never know the credit card numbers. Like if you buy Jollibee and you know they have the tap to pay, Jollibee will never know your credit card data. They do not have your, they do not have your credit card data. So it's not it's not the PDIC because the PDIC is the depositors. Right? It's an insurance for deposits. So Philippine Deposit Insurance Corporation. He, here it is actually the payment gateway. So um, they they ensure that there's data minimization and data obfuscation that they cannot know exactly your number, but they can verify that the transaction is correct. So that's why banks have a if you have a credit card or debit card, there's a delay in posting, right? Right? You notice that there's a delay in posting, three days, two days, one day. That's because what happens in a transaction? So let, let me just give you a lesson on, on credit card, <laughs> on, on payment gateway transactions now, because it is important that you understand the concept of how these payments work. So let's say you buy a MacBook worth fifty thousand. Let's just say, let's just, I think I'm not sure. That, I think it's, it's more than that, but let's put it at fifty thousand. So you buy a MacBook at fifty thousand. Um, the second thing is, you use your card, right? And you type your card and you press pay. What happens is, the merchant calls their payment gateway and says, Hi, can you check whether you know, MJ has 50000 in her account? The bank will say, Yes, she has 50000 in her account. Okay, can you hold that for us? They will hold. They will hold 50000 from your account. But if you don't have 50000 or if you're overdrawn, right? you don't have the credit balance, the bank will say, No, she does not have 50000 But it will not say, You know what? MJ has 100000 they will not say, MJ has 500000 in her credit card. No, the bank will just say, yes, she has enough funds to complete this transaction. Or no, she does not have enough funds to complete the transaction. And then the bank will hold, uh, the payment gateway will hold that, that payment. 
so the bank will debit that amount from you in real time but it will hold on to the money because in a few days there's exchange of hands so that's why even though the money was gotten from your account that's actually not the complete transaction it takes days for bank a and bank b merchant bank and i think dean discussed that with you how you know <laughs> banks work right and then the payment gateway the, the the merchant bank and then the bank of the of the of the person that's purchasing it so Similarly, that's how card payments work. So the bank A, bank B, uh, depending on who the merchant, the bank of the merchant, or your bank, they they talk after you purchase it, and they say, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna give this fifty thousand to you, and you confirm that the goods are received. And then, you know, yeah, the goods are delivered, confirming, and then the transaction becomes complete after few days. So that's why, yeah, that's why the posting is delayed. Now, why in the advent of technology, everything is real time? <laughs> Why is everything, you know, t- taking three days to post on my account? And people will complain to banks that, Why is it three days completing my transaction? I paid it today. Well, it's because there, there's that process. So I have, I also have a question, attorney, regarding wallets. But this time around, uh, this already involves our physical wallets. Because, um, attorney, uh, this is where we usually store our IDs. And I noticed on Facebook that when people would find a wallet containing the IDs of a stranger, they would always include a photo of the IDs and make the post public in the hopes of locating the owner. Uh, what are the proper steps to take in order to safeguard the information contained in the IDs? So for me, no, I don't post it online. I mean, that's just me. You can post it, but you can obfuscate. We call it data obfuscation. It's one of the techniques to minimize the identifiability of an individual. It's about like blurring, redacting. Yeah, that's called data obfuscation. For me, there's an easier way. You give it to the issuing agency. If an ATM was lost, you give it to the bank who issued it. If if a school ID was lost, you give it to the school. If a SSS ID was lost, give it to SSS, right? And if the person says, where's my ID? You tell them, I, I give it to SSS. You can claim it from there, right? That's a very, that's the simplest and most safest solution. One, you don't become liable if the ID gets lost in your possession. <laughs> and two, you know, you, you you don't keep information of others uh, inadvertently. So that's the easiest approach, really. Uh, but you can also redact. You know, you can blur. Uh, if you were to post that online, you know, remove all identifiable information. Sometimes people forget the QR codes or the barcode. Yeah, remove that. Remove that because they can, that can be scanned. And we call that metadata. The metadata can be retrieved. Yeah. If you scan the barcode, no. If you scan the barcode or a QR code, if you save that image and and you know, use it, um, then you can get the information. Even if you blur the name, the metadata is still there. So it's called metadata because it's a data underlying another set of data. So, similar question regarding IDs attorney so uh, how about attorney in the regular conduct of a resort and hotel check-ins attorney diba usually uh, the front desk will require the guest to present the uh, reservation voucher and then the, the front desk will ask for the valid ID and usually attorney like they will really scan it and then attach it to the reservation uh, voucher of the guest so attorney my question is um, what are the possible implications for customers who give out their ID to the establishment at Rini. Again, we look at it from, right? from the perspective of the hotel and the perspective of the guests. Because we cannot, you know, you need to think about it always between the 
the PIC, the PIP, and the data subjects, right? Because the PIC, there, they have the right to process the information, you know, in in within lawful bounds, but also the data subject has the right to to have their data properly processed in a manner which is consistent with law. Now, going back to this problem, if you were the hotel, you can argue you have a legitimate interest, right? Legitimate interest to make sure that what if what if you book a room for an owner, right? And you know you post online or you're in your mind, wow, I'm going to Boracay tomorrow. Someone saw that and said, I'm gonna pretend to be MJ tomorrow. Someone checked in your room, and when you go to the front desk, someone said, Mom, you already checked in, right? How to prevent that transaction? Making sure that people present their ID the same way that who booked, who booked it for them, or who's the person that's either booking or on behalf of someone else, right? So that's the legitimate interest to make sure that they're properly identified, and you know, it's not a person who is. Uh, safety and security purposes for the hotel and also the staff and other guests as well. You wouldn't want anyone you know who is not uh, who may have a warrant or is wanted to to book a to book a room same to yourself, right? And same in the same hotel. So you can argue that uh, if you're the hotel, you would argue that you know you have a legitimate interest to ensure the safety and security of all the guests. Now, it, in in terms of risk, um, it it will be it will be further depending upon the practices of the hotel. Because you need to look at their privacy policy. What are their practices? You can always ask them, what are your privacy practices? Do you have a privacy policy, etc. Um, a very good way to know that, you know, you can ask them for their privacy policy. Or you can even ask them simply, what will you do with my information? And they will explain to you, oh, we will just keep this for our file. But we will be deleting, you know, how long will you be keeping that? We will say, we'll keep this for six months, we'll keep this for one year. I'm sure the answer will be, you know, they will be shocked if you ask, how long will you be keeping this? But that's one of the requirements. You cannot keep data for longer than is legally necessary for you to keep that data. That's one of the requirements of the data. Uh, yeah. And if you're the data subject, you can argue, again, disproportional, right? You know, why do you need my ID? Can you just verify my information? Why do you need a copy? Can you just look at my ID and return to me, right? I think that's reasonable, right? I give you my ID, but I will not let you have a copy of it. Why? Why do you need a copy of my ID if you can just verify? Is this the same face? Is this the same person in the in the booking details found online? So again, depends on who's arguing. So, Attorney, while we're on the topic of resorts, vacation, I'd like to ask everybody here if you could bring anyone or someone. To a, a getaway trip, who would it be? Oh, def- definitely my wife, or else I will not be. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be bringing along my cousins because they're my usual travel buddies. Sure. My pet dog because I'm a loner. <laughs> Maybe Ryan Rosling. <laughs> So for me, I'll be bringing also my perfect <laughs> self cheer. So um, it's really nice to spend the vacation with your special someone or someone you're in a relationship with. But teenagers nowadays actually are very expressive of their feelings to their loved ones, especially their boyfriend or girlfriend. Always posting everything online. Yeah, if you're not. IG official, you're not in a relationship, unfortunately, these days. 
Um, so I have this cousin who has a friend who has a friend, <laughs> who, has another friend. <laughs> who has another friend. So this friend is a girl. Um, she's just 16 years old. She has a boyfriend, also a minor, 17 years old. Unfortunately, she sent a private video of her to the boyfriend, and that boyfriend posted it on Facebook my day. So um, one hour later, the boyfriend was able to put down the video, but. Of course, the damage has already been done. Um, friends, common friends, have already seen, were saved, and shared it through common friends. So the girl, the little girl, was really scandalized. Um, in this case, attorney, I'd like to ask if there's a data privacy violation um, on the part of the boyfriend um, against the girlfriend, and what are her remedies if there are criminally? criminal-wise or um, data privacy. And lastly, the liability of those who saved and shared the videos, even if it was not posted online but through group chats. Yeah, these are minors. Yeah, these are minors. So, so, first is, what is the violation in this case? I think this case goes beyond data privacy. Because no? people think privacy, they think it's only the Data Privacy Act. That's actually wrong. Yeah, that's a misconception. A lot of laws protect privacy. Anti-wiretapping, civil code, criminal, uh, revised penal code. So a lot of laws protect privacy. It's not just the Data Privacy Act. But this is a privacy issue, no doubt. Right? But it may not only be a data privacy case. Um, so in this scenario, uh, the uploading of a highly sensitive and private activity without consent or lawful grounds is a violation of multiple laws. First is we look at this from a cybercrime standpoint, specifically as a content-related offense. So if you look at RA10175, one of the offenses is content-related offenses. You have there a section called content. First is the CIA, or the Confidentiality, Integrity, Availability Offenses. And then you have the second, which is um, computer-aided, I think, fraud. And Third one is computer-related offenses and child, you know, child pornography using ICT falls under content-related offenses. So if you look at this from a cybercrime standpoint, it is a form of child pornography under the anti-cybercrime app. In this case, by posting a my day, it is considered transmitting, uh, publishing, and broadcasting of child pornography since the victim is 18 years of age. The anti-cybercrime app imposes a one degree higher than that is provided under the anti-child pornography act. Uh, for such offense, since it was committed through the use of ICT, right? uploading through my day, it was through an ICT device. Second, we can take a look at this from a VAUSI standpoint, or violence against women and children. If, she, uh, if the minor was forced or has suffered sexual or psychological harm because of the publication of the video, then she can file a VAUSI case. Uh, that, that's another cause of action for her. And third, if she was not aware of the recording, or you know, aware that she was being filmed without her consent, then she can use the Anti-Photo and Video Voyeurism Act. Right? It punishes the act of recording sexual acts without consent of the parties, including broadcasting, showing, and exhibiting of the same. Um, if this was committed again through ICT, like in my day, it's one degree higher. It's always one degree higher if you commit it through the use of ICT. Uh, lastly, for data privacy, she can demand Facebook that it be taken down, the content be taken down, because it is a violation of her um, rights, uh, and, it, and it's considered unlawful. Uh, it's a violation of the Anti-Child Pornography Act. She can have the information removed. Also, her exercising her right to erasure uh, by removing the content. So, under the Anti-Child Porn uh, anti Pornography Law, the content providers, you know, those people who are providing the information, 
if they are aware or they become aware that they're hosting those kinds of content, they have the obligation to remove that. And in terms of the liabilities who have seen, saved, and shared, you have to divide that into those who have seen because it's, it's different effects. So those who have seen, those who have shared, and those who have saved. Actually, it's two. Save and share, maybe, maybe group into one. So that's first seen, right? Those who have just seen the video. If you're really looking for that kind of content, then it's willful. Um, because the law says um, willful access of child pornography is punished. Willful access. So if you don't know, you're scrolling my day, but you stumbled upon the content, you closed it immediately, you'll not become liable. Because there's no willful. But if you scrolled, you didn't know, and but you looked at it and say, oh, you know, that very, very atrocious kind of act. But, you know, we don't know who these people are. Again, if someone saw that, that is actually a crime. So, mere viewing, willful access of content, of that kind of content, is already a crime in the anti-child pornography world. So, those who have saved the My Day, right? Saved or shared? Well, first and foremost, you cannot save a My Day of others. Yes, screen record, unless it's used through a screen recording app. So, um, you can argue that if they have intent to publish, distribute, or broadcast the same, it is considered as uh, publishing or you know, and under the anti-child pornography law. And these are acts also punishable uh, by the anti-cybercrime law. Um, those who have shared the My Day, also distribution, broadcasting, and exporting. If you have more than three kinds of contents like that in your device, you, it, it can be a presumption that you have the intent to sell, distribute, or export the same thing. So, <clears throat> that's that. So, while we're at the topic of Facebook, uh, liability, not as explicit as videos, but what about screenshots? Like, in this day and age, we love to complain online. Sometimes we post spite screenshots of conversations to make the other party look bad. Like, is this a violation of data privacy? Like, for example, while scrolling through Facebook, I'd noticed that my neighbor posted screenshots of an argument we had, and he wouldn't bother censoring my name, and he even edited the conversation. Like, can I go after the neighbor using the Data Privacy Act, or like, am I just... (laughs) 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 So I I would go to different kinds of causes of action, right? Because there are one case, one cause of action. You can go the data privacy route, typical data privacy route, and the National Privacy Commission has a rules of procedure as well that's different from other uh, government agencies. So you can file a case with the National Privacy Commission for you know unlawful processing of information. However, I think that may be far-fetched. So what is the best cause of action? It's actually privacy port. There's a privacy port under Arctic, under Section 26 of the Civil Code. If you look at it, uh, it states a cause of action if one meddles into the private affairs of another or intrigues or causes another to be alienated from his friends. That's the word used in article in section 26, in the civil code. So that's that's considered in other jurisdictions. In the Philippines, it's not commonly called as that, but in other jurisdictions, uh, it's called a privacy tort. So it's a cause of action for damages because your right to private life was violated. So you can go that route. You can you can claim for damages because you know. They meddled in your private affairs. They cause you to become alienated, vexed, vexed by other people. And if you are positively identified, you know, if it was a positive identification with malicious intent, you can file for cyber libel. Although, you know, 
there are proponents. It's very rare to get a conviction for cyber libel, but you can also add that as an additional cause of action. So you have three causes of action. That's right, listeners. So always remember, listeners. Ah, even if we create our own Facebook account, it does not mean that no other people can access it. So, um, says, what is your takeaway for this entire data privacy everyday live podcast? So obviously, I've taken a lot today. <laughs> very, um, very worthwhile attorney discussion-wise. Ah, uh, a lot of uh, eye openings. Even if we are studying students of law, there are. Really important points we need to be mindful of. Um, as for me, um, my main takeaway is that uh, the protection of data privacy is um, everyone's responsibility. Um, at first sight, it seems like it's only for professionals, those who know the technicality of it. But if we apply it to everyday life, um, everyone is really involved. So that is all for me. So that neighbor better watch out. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, don't put your. I guess I should. And uh, people should be careful what they post. Uh, videos, screenshots. A lot of different rules apply. But it's great to know I have three causes of action now. <laughs> okay. So, Adrini, for any like parting words, parting words, any um, tips to all our listeners right there on how they will protect their data privacy right in everyday life. So, firstly, no, um, always be conscious of the information that you provide online, right? It's always about, if I share this, what are the results of what I'm sharing? What harms will it cause? What benefits will I get? Because privacy ultimately is a risk-benefit scenario. If I share this, what will I get? I get clout. <laughs> so, yeah, if, I, if, if I share this, there will be a risk that you know people will see my wealth, or you know, if you're a person who shares a lot of their extravagance, right, and you want to be a social climber, you know you may get the benefit of clout, but the risk of someone, um, you know, inadvertently being a target for kidnapping, pushing in a van. Um, and then there's another thing that I want to do as a closing remark no? for law students and you know new lawyers. Privacy is a very interesting field. If you want to practice, there's a there's a specific practice around data privacy, and it's not mature in this country. Let me tell you. But we're growing. You know, the privacy industry is growing. We are becoming more uh, in the spotlight because of the recent, you know, because of technology and also the recent happenings. And people are becoming more conscious, more aware of their rights to privacy. People are exercising and becoming more careful and handling information. So now is the best time. For lawyers to become privacy lawyers, and you know, people think that oh, you need a technical background, you need to know programming. No, you don't. You don't need to know programming. You don't need to know. I I don't know how to program. I know very little when before ten years ago, but now I don't know. Right? Um, it's not a requirement for you to become a technical person for privacy. I have a lot of my mentor is not you know, my mentor who has been in the privacy industry for twenty years. He he is not you know he's not uh, someone who is technical. But he's very good in privacy. So privacy is not IT. Privacy is not information security. Privacy it's it's its own brand of practice. And now is the very best time if you're a law student and you're interested in privacy. Yeah, <laughs> feel free to join the ship, and you know we'll go on board and we'll 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 become you know a, a privacy firm, right? Specializing in data privacy. But yeah, really, it's it's the right time to, to go to this route if you're interested. in 
you'll see a lot of intricate things in practice that they're not in the everyday life you can apply. Thank you very much, Ariel. Thank you, guys. So, listeners, I hope you learned a thing or two in this episode, and we hope we will see you in the next one. Bye, guys! <laughs> <laughs>